shares. And hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Sorry for being a few minutes late, but I have such a lovely guest today. We were chatting before the show. It could have been a pre-show, but... We'll have to tell you another time what we were talking about. It wasn't plant-based eating. I'll tell you that. It's Exactly. It was the opposite of plant-based. Exactly. Eating. And I don't know what you got in your mind, but whatever you have, it's probably not that. Yeah. <laughs> I love this guy. This is Dr. Ron Weiss, and he joins us the third Friday of every month to answer your questions. We call it The Doctor Is In. But if you want your questions answered, all you have to do is subscribe to chefaj.com because there's so many questions when we have a medical doctor that we can't take them from the chat. So we hope you understand. And please welcome Dr. Ron Weiss. Tell us all about what's been going on with you. Uh, oh, well, uh, we are in the thick of it. We, um, we are planning for um, all, all hands on deck right now because we are planning for an amazing Farm Days Festival. And I know um, for those of you who don't know what that is, that is a two-day festival which occurs uh, on September 9th and 10th this year. And we have the world leaders in lifestyle medicine and, and the environment and uh, ethics and all kinds of things, you know, and and um, they come to the farm and, and everything occurs on the farm here at Ethos Farm Project. And this year, um, we are very pleased to be having uh, Team Shirzai, and I know you know them, right? Because you've had them in your show quite a bit. They're the world-renowned um, uh, plant-based neurologists, and um, they're going to be talking about uh, preserving our um, our cognitive function as we get older. Uh, we will have Rich Roll coming. Oh, wow. Yes. And we will have uh, Peter Singer, who is the, the founder of the modern animal rights movement. Uh, Brittany Giroudi will be coming. Um, Let's say, uh, oh, I know there's there are people I'm, I'm forgetting. We're, we're going to have an ethics. Oh, Columbus Batiste is coming. Um, uh, you, I know he's been on your show before, right? He has and a regular he, show on Sunday. Right. Yeah. And, and, um, and we have, um, you know, all kinds of good things. We're going to have an ethics of eating, pa uh, eating panel with all the stars talking about um, the, uh, perspective of eating through the lens of ethics, uh, all kinds of ethics, not just uh, kindness to sentient beings and animals, but also ethics of food justice, how uh, food impacts the ethics of healthcare and medical care and care of the environment and our planet and climate change and all this stuff. So we're very excited. Please, um, you know, everyone who's listening, if you don't get our newsletter already, you can go to our website and our, it's uh, ethosfarmproject.org is our nonprofit's website. And on the front, on the homepage, you'll see uh, you can sign up for our free newsletter. It's a fantastic newsletter full. It's a quarterly thing. And it usually has uh, fantastic recipes and helpful hints on lifestyle medicine. And it gives you updates for what we're doing here on the farm. And the other thing you can do is um, you can sign up for our farm days. Uh, we are probably about to start selling tickets uh, probably in the next week or so. Wow, that sounds like an amazing lineup. And how the heck did you get Rich Roll? I didn't even know he was doing events. That's amazing. Uh, I didn't know either. But uh, yeah, we, we were very, very, very fortunate. We'll have all kinds of activities, fitness activities on the farm, natural movement, mindful activities, environmental in, in activities, uh, basically living on the farm. So um, it's, it's a unique experience. Well, that is great because this actually ties into the very first question, which is from Danelle. And she wanted to know, do you ever give tours of your farm? Uh, we do. You know, so the farm is about an hour west of uh, the George Washington Bridge and Lincoln Tunnel and Holland Tunnel, just of the, you know, Manhattan. And um, uh, we are 
we're open to the public. Um, anyone is welcome to come here, um, um, especially when our doctor's farm market is open, which is on weekends. And, you know, you're free to walk around. Um, we During farm days, we have specific farm tours, which will, you know, give you all the background of the farm and the historical significance. And it, it's a very, very historic place. It's 300 year old working farm. Um, it's a national historic landmark. So That's uh, yeah, great. everyone is welcome. Nice, thanks. Well, if you'd like, we'll jump right into the more medical questions. Sure. The first, great, the first one is from Sue and she says, Dr. Weiss, do you know ways of dealing with the itching of CSU, which doesn't stand for Cal State University apparently, but chronic spontaneous uticaria? Yes, well, you know, it's not just the itching that's a problem, it's the allergic reaction. So, um, for those who don't know what urticaria is, that's the medical name for hives. Uh, they're like welts that can all of a sudden appear anywhere on your body. Um, and um, for most people, uh, you know, uh, many people have it occur in their life. It's usually spontaneous. It occurs for as an allergic um, reaction to something in our environment, whether we ate it, inhaled it, you know, rubbed up against it, touched it. Uh, it's usually very difficult to find out what the provocative substance is. But for most people, it really doesn't really matter. You can take an antihistamine like Zyrtec or Benadryl or Allegra, and it will basically your immune system calms down after a few days or weeks and it's gone. However, there is a very small minority of people who will have chronic urticaria. And that may not go away. And it can go on for a long time. It can go on for years. And for those, those patients generally end up at an allergist. And the allergist makes an, as, exhaustive, as an exhaustive attempt as possible to test you for every possible thing they can think of in the world. But you can't test for every single molecule there is, like in fabric softeners, things in the air, you can't. So sometimes even the allergist fails and they can't identify what you're reacting to. So it sounds like you may have reached that point. If, if you haven't and you haven't been to an allergist, I would encourage you to go. The allergist will try to give you some high powered antihistamines, but sometimes they don't work so well. Um, I will say this. Um, I did have a patient who had difficult chronic urticaria, and we fasted this patient. And after eight months, it was so severe, the patient could not sleep at night because the itching, the pruritus, was just maddening. She could not fall asleep. And after eight months, we water fasted her, tipping my hat to Dr. Goldhammer. We, we water fasted her and on the fourth day it resolved, never to return. So uh, I believe that uh, in my experience, long-term water fasting could help at least because I, uh, I, we know that long-term water fasting changes the immune system. It absolutely changes the gut microbiome. And that is an important seat of our immune system. So uh, I think that may be the next step for you if you've tried all the other things I've recommended. Fantastic, thank you. And by the way, I'm assuming you're eating a diet of whole plant foods because that's a, that's a, a low... That's a diet that's low in allergenic potential. Mm. Uh, I know you'll go to a lot of allergists. They'll say, oh, there are a lot of histamines in plant foods. And I've tried that with urticaria patients. I've not noticed that even avoiding low histamine plant foods will help. But you can try what you, what you wish. That's very encouraging because I was actually going to ask if fasting helped. And that's encouraging that it, at least in your yes. patient that it did. 
sometimes moving helps, you know, I don't mean for this disease, but I've, I've known people like sometimes if they move to a different house or a different city, even their allergies. Well, yeah, because there may be something in the local, what happens if there's an incinerating plant next door to them, or let's say a dry cleaning plant that's venting fumes or, you know, who knows what, what is in the environment where we live. Yeah. Well, it's good to know that that might be an option. So believe it or not, we have questions dating back all the way to September. That's how popular you are. So we'll try to get through as many as possible. This one is from Melissa. Can you ask Dr. Weiss about H. pylori? How is it contracted, treated, and how do you recover from it? Mm. Well, so H. pylori is very interesting, at least in my medical life, because when I was a medical student, it didn't exist. It was not known. Uh, I was a medical student. We thought people got stomach ulcers. We weren't sure why, maybe from stress, maybe from too much stomach acid. Uh, and you have to remember, stomach ulcers were very, 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 very common uh, before the 1970s. So even within our lifetime, Chef AJ, did you know that gastrectomy was one of the top most common surgeries done in the United States? It wasn't, you know, people think today, oh, what's the number one surgeon? What's the number one operation people have in America? Well, maybe gallbladder, maybe they have their appendix taken out. Gastrectomy, taking out your stomach was right up there, at least with those common operations. And the reason why is, there was no way to treat a, a hole in your stomach. Once you got it, we didn't really have effective medicines other than chopping out your stomach. It sounds terrible, right? And then in the 1970s, Tagamet was born. Um, it was the first. Um, it was the first H2 blocker, uh, which blocked this acid production in your stomach, and then came its relatives and competitors like Pepsid, Zantac, uh, stuff like that. And they were pretty effective and that basically got rid of the operations. And then came the PPIs, the proton pump inhibitors like Omeprazole or Prilosec or Nexium. But in any event, right in the middle of this, you know, that seemed to decrease the amount of operations that were needed to cure stomach ulcers. But the thing we noticed is you could take these medicines to shut off acid in the stomach and most, most of the ulcers would heal, but then they, would, they could come back again like 50% of the time. And right after I graduated, there was a medical student, I think he was in Australia, who basically um, suggested who's doing research and suggested that stomach ulcers were due to an infection, a specific bacteria. And everyone was laughing at him. That's crazy. Like why would a stomach ulcer be due to bacteria? And then they actually identified the bacteria and he was right. It was called Helicobacter pylori. And I remember five years later when I was a young doctor, I got I, I got pamphlets from the federal CDC telling me to advise patients that if they had a stomach ulcer, that it's due to an infection, H. pylori, and they should take antibiotics to get rid of it. And what we found out is that almost all stomach ulcers are due to the H. pylori infection. The H. pylori is living in the crater of the stomach. And um, that um, if you wipe it out, and it may be difficult to wipe out, but if you wipe it out, um, that it it uh, the stomach ulcer doesn't come back again. It's curative. Um, so that's that's why um, we're on the lookout for H. pylori. Here's another reason why we're on the lookout for H. pylori, and it's because um, H. pylori growth in the stomach is associated with a, a high increase in the chance of getting stomach cancer uh, because the H. pylori um, causes a lot of inflammation on the stomach lining. And because of that, when we find it, uh, we're uh, 
the doctors are hell bent on eradicating it. And the only way to eradicate it uh, in conventional terms is by using a very complex um, concoction of drugs. And sometimes the H. pylori can be, um, can be resistant. In any event, if you do have H. pylori at this time, you know, I know we don't like to use antibiotics because antibiotics carpet bomb your gut microbiome and your colon, the bacteria that are responsible for your health. But um, if you do have it at this time, I, I would recommend ridding yourself of it with your doctor's prescriptions. Um, just as a side note, um, there is some evidence you, you know, that H. pylori, because we've been going after it and eradicating it, it may be verging on extinction. And that's not necessarily a good thing in the world. That, uh, and it's because we think that H. pylori may have a positive association and may be necessary for normal and good growth in children's GI tracts. So we haven't figured all this out yet. But uh, for now, because of the cancer risks and the ulcer risks, I would recommend at least eradicating it. Great, thank you. And then Next, eating a diet of whole plant foods. Absolutely. Okay. Next question, I don't get a lot, but maybe you do. This is from Aurora. She said her husband who had a heart attack in 2018 follows a plant-based diet, but he's always had trouble keeping weight on. What can he do to add weight without eating foods such as nuts, avocados, or oils? Or do you think eating these foods in moderation is okay? Well, I know there are a lot of people on the line very jealous of this individual. Yes, Chef AJ? Usually we hear the opposite. Yeah, we usually hear the opposite. So, you know, um, so how we know how old this gentleman is? She didn't say, and this is a question all the way from September. So <laughs> she may not be watching. So there are, you know, as Chef AJ can tell you, there are different ways to eat a plant-based diet. And, um, you know, obviously if, if you're, if you are a person who needs to gain weight, in other words, if you're not a very muscular person and your, your body mass index is less than 19, or 20, your BMI, or 19, let's say or 18. Because uh, Chef AJ, a lot of people think they need to gain weight if they have a BMI of 20 or 21 or down there. They don't. That, that BMI is actually optimal for longevity, for living a long life. So first find out what your body mass index is. And if it's, if it's 20 or 21, you're perfect. Why would you want to gain weight? If it's below 18, 18, 17, 16, yeah, you are underweight. So uh, in an effort to gain weight, all you really have to think about is eating more calories. It doesn't have to be calories from fat. Um, you know, it can be calories from starch. Uh, starch doesn't, it doesn't have to have fat. I mean, uh, you can, and especially, um, you know, as people get older, um, they need more protein uh, to build their bones, uh, especially when you're postmenopausal and, you know, you want to have stronger bones and, and reverse demineralization, or if you want to build muscle mass, which is always desirable, because as we get older, the bones and the muscles, they kind of, they kind of atrophy. So in order to prevent that, you do want to be eating enough protein and our protein requirements increase to maintain these, this healthy musculoskeletal system as we get older. And I recommend to the patients that they eat at least 60 grams of protein, which is at least, which is no small feat. So, um, and you can do that by eating a lot of legumes, right? They're extremely high in protein. And guess what? They're very high in calories. You can eat things like quinoa and you can eat, you can eat uh, oatmeal. They're very high in calories and in protein. So uh, you don't have to eat fats like avocados. And, although, you know, 
I know this gentleman is probably asking about the nuts and the fats because he may be uh, following a very low fat diet a la Dr. Esselstyn um, to make sure that his, uh, to ensure that he is reversing his coronary artery disease. Um, but, um, you know, I, I believe that, um, I believe that you can, if, if that's your desire and you don't want to eat nuts and seeds, you can, you can, you can eat foods like that and gain weight. If, if, if you're, you want to be more liberal with the nuts and seeds, you know, uh, some people believe you can have walnuts, which are a relatively healthy nut. There are a lot of studies that show that wal that nuts are healthy for your heart, right? And um, you can do that. It would have been interesting to know what his BMI is because I'm not saying this is the case with this gentleman, but a lot of people think they're too thin when they're actually quite healthy. I think I because our culture has changed. Absolutely. Well, because everyone that you're surrounded with, our culture is mostly obese and overweight. Most, the majority of people who are surrounding you are abnormally, you have abnormally high weight. So then you, you in comparison look. Right. Because you know, they say, I, I read that we develop our worldview of what is normal by what we see around us. So we're, I guess, those that are not overweight are abnormal now. Yeah. Chef AJ, when I, you know, I went whole food plant based uh, the night I put down the China study. Uh, when I read the China study and in, in it, uh, Colin Campbell has a, like the, one of the last chapters, he says, take a 30 day challenge. Uh, eating only plants and see what happened. So I did that and I continued. And that was the beginning of my journey of being plant-based. I weighed a hundred and I'm 5'11". I weighed 172 pounds, 5'10 and a half. So I was at the upper range of normal weight for BMI. Uh, I was like 24. And then within 12 weeks, I be, went from 172 pounds to 147 pounds without trying. And um, I became, you know, a BMI of 20. And uh, so optimal, right? This was the exact same weight I was when I was a, a state swimming champion in high school. And I was, you know, in my early 40s. So patients came in to see me when they saw this when they hadn't seen me like in a year or so, they, oh, Dr. Weiss, are you sick? Dr. Weiss, are you okay? Which means like, do you have cancer? So I think people are just not used to, you know, it's what your frame of reference are. People, as you said, are not necessarily used to seeing what a good healthy weight means or what it looks like. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if it's available anymore, but uh, many years ago, I watched a BBC documentary called Why Thin People Can't Get Fat. And they kept these people that were thin or normal weight in a metabolic ward for like 30 days and force fed them like 10,000 calories. They had a really hard time consuming them. They would have to do things like melt ice cream. And at the end, they put them in those things that the astronauts go in and they really, they, they gained like the, uh, the visceral fat, you know, like they damaged yeah. their body, but they, they just couldn't get gain like the subcutaneous fat. Like they, they, they just could not get these people fat. Yeah. I'd like to take a look at their gut microbiome. Yeah. It was interesting. Anyway, yeah. but anyway, thank you. Okay. Next question is from Andrea. And she says, I lost my period and my doctor wants to put me on hormonal birth control, but I don't want to go on any medication. I'm already whole food plant-based and get sleep and movement. What are your suggestions for getting my period back naturally? Do we know how old Andrea is? No. You know, we should maybe have a form where they say. Yeah. It's okay. No, 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 no. It's okay. I, I'm just curious. I thought maybe if she said, so, um, you know, <laughs> So assuming that she's not like perimenopausal, in other words, that it's it's okay for her to lose her period, which is, you know, generally for most women, it's in the 40s to 50s, uh, then I, I wouldn't worry about it. But if she is a if she's a woman of childbearing age, um, you know, I think that um, 
it probably would be good for her to have periods uh, as long as, you know, there, there are different reasons for losing periods. Uh, women, uh, women's, when women's physiology is extremely stressed out, like if you're training for the Olympics or you're Ironman or you're running like miles, whatever, and you, you're a top endurance athlete, you may lose your period because those, those are very physically stressful conditions for your body. Um, if you are fasting, you know, I don't know if this woman is intermittently fasting, your body thinks, you know, you are basically facing a famine. And so why would we continue you know, evolutionarily, the body is very smart. Why would we want to keep having periods to reproduce ourselves if a famine is coming? That wouldn't work out very well. So, uh, so uh, you would stop having periods. So um, just putting that out there to make sure that this woman is not engaged in very high intensity physical fitness or training or doing significant amounts of fasting. And if that's not the case, yes, I do think that it would be best to probably figure out what's going on because it indicates that you're, you know, a woman's reproductive cycle is, it, uh, tract is ruled by cycles of hormones. Uh, you know, progesterone and estrogen are the two common ones uh, from the lower uh, rung of the of the echelon of the of the reproductive hormones, but there are all kinds of other hormones that are coming, controlling or supervisory hormones from the brain. And in any event, um, it should be checked out because you you know you you, you do want to have normal periods. Mm -hmm. Great. To make sure that there's nothing else going on, and I would follow the doctor's advice. Thank you. Okay. You know, we had, uh, we have another wonderful uh, plant-based doctor once a month named Dr. Scott Harrington, and his presentation was on understanding your lab results. And this next question is about that from Claudia. And she said, after following a starch-based diet for over a year, my doctor said my potassium was high at 6.0. What could cause that? I hope I don't have to change my diet because it's rocket fuel and I never felt better. Hmm. Well, um, Assuming that your kidney function is normal, and I'm assuming that it is, uh, because this young lady didn't say that on her blood test that her kidney showed signs of failure. Uh, my first guess is that it's a lab error, that it's a mistake. Uh, oftentimes, when we get a high potassium, it could be due to a traumatic blood draw in the phlebotomist's office. Um, you know, the needle kind of had some difficulty going in or it crushed some of the red blood cells. When red, red blood cells break, either in the needle or in the tube, they spill potassium and potassium levels can be falsely elevated. So that's the first thing I would look for. Sometimes the lab would say, there's a little note on the bottom of the lab and you can look at this to see if there's a remark saying the blood was hemolyzed because the lab will often report this. Um, if you don't find this, I would definitely repeat the blood test because it's not normal to have a potassium of six. It is not normal. And you don't want a potassium of six because it's too high. And not that I think six would kill you, but if it keeps going, higher, you don't know where it's going. If it keeps going high, it could, you know, potassium, high potassium is very dangerous. And um, so you do want to ascertain exactly why you have it. There's no possible way that I could ever imagine that you eating plants would cause a high potassium. Um, the other thought of a high potassium, if it's, if it's not a mistake from, or an error or from the blood draw is that even though it, um, there are rare kidney conditions, even though the kidneys are not in failure, sometimes uh, they can create high potassium in the blood. And uh, those would be more rare conditions. And uh, you should be checked for those uh, by your doctor. Uh, but definitely follow up on that because you, 
you know, if, it, if, it's, if it's nothing important, you'll repeat it and it'll just become a normal potassium level and you don't have to worry again. If it's repeated and it's still high, it has to be worked up. Great, thank you. Here's a question from Nazine. And she says that she has been whole food plant-based for four years, but oil-free for the past two. She's gonna be 59 in April and has been perimenopausal for the past year. And she is concerned about osteoporosis. She does strength training two to three times a week, 30 minutes of HIIT running one to two times a week, as well as yoga three times a week. And she's wondering if she can, she should consider HRT for her bones. No history, family history of cancer, but she's been recommended to take Tybolone and wonder if it could have adverse effects on the liver. I mean, if she doesn't have any problems, why would you take something before you, you know what I mean? You know, well, well, it's not even recommended for people who do have problems. So <laughs> uh, even if you do have uh, um, documented osteoporosis, and, and, and by the way, what I usually do is I, I just get, I'll just get a DEXA scan when you become, if you're menopausal, get a DEXA scan or perimenopausal. It's okay, just get it. You may have a good bone, you don't know. Although I must say that the majority of women's have, have not good bones. I would say probably nine out of every 10 women who just has the initial screening in, in, in my experience or eight out of 10 has abnormally uh, abnormal or low mineralization of the bones, which require attention. But you don't know until you test, so just test it. I, but so I definitely wouldn't do that if you don't even know. And even if you do know, it's recommended in this current day that women not take systemic hormones uh, to treat anything in menopause. And the reason why is because we know it increases the risk of getting breast cancer and heart attacks. So that's why we don't do that. And you know, in my experience, you can just, uh, we have good experience reversing and, and build the, the, the osteopenia or osteoporosis and building up the bone by eating a good whole food plant-based diet, which has enough protein, and by doing specific loading exercises on your bones. That's it. And make sure your vitamin D is okay. Nice. And, and so that's what you recommend for your patients. Yes, don't, you should stay away from taking, <laughs> you know, the taking of hormones systemically of female hormones in, in, in the face of menopause is one of the dark chapters of, of medical history, in, at least in the United States. And in my career, I was a young doctor and it had just, as soon as I, entered practice, it was recommended by everyone that this should take place as a means to prevent, treat osteoporosis and prevent heart attacks. And what we found is the exact opposite. It may help bones, but it causes heart attacks and definitely causes breast cancer. And the odd thing is, not the odd thing is, the scary thing is, if you look at breast cancer diagnosis or incidence, uh, there's a bump up in the curve of the incidence line from the point that they that uh, hormone estrogen replacement was recommended in the early 90s until they stopped recommending it because they this such study was stopped and they found that it was causing breast cancer. And as soon as doctors on mass in the nation stopped prescribing the estrogen replacement, hormone replacement, breast cancer incidence fell in the United States. Wow. Cool, thank you. All right, next question. This is from Susan. She said, I once heard you say to take kefir when going on antibiotics, but is there a vegan kefir option? I had to go on prednisone for two weeks and feel that my gut microbiome has suffered. What can I do? I don't ever remember saying e eating kefir. I, could I be getting Alzheimer's? No. <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, I don't think that's a bad idea to eat fermented foods. But if you eat fermented foods, just make sure, you know, 
a lot of fermented foods like kimchi or pickles or stuff like that, they have huge amounts of salt. Do you have good recipes to make fermented like sauerkraut without salt? Or okay, that's so salt? funny that you asked because just a week ago, I had a guy on who does sell four flavors of kimchi and sauerkraut without salt. And I tasted them on the air. They were delicious. The problem is he's not in stores right now. It's in glass. So shipping's expensive, but hopefully he'll get in stores one day. But I did have guests on this show making both kimchi and sauerkraut without salt. And did they have vinegar in them? Oh, I don't remember. I think they used, they, I think what they did was juiced celery because it was so salty as the liquid. Okay, I would have to but no vinegar? It. Well, because that's good if it doesn't, because vinegar is a, is a sterilizing agent, right? So if you, you put vinegar in there, you'd kill any possible good bacteria you would want. So if those, if you have those recipes or whatever, I'm sure there are recipes hanging around for, for, I know that uh, our, our nutrition head here, Wendy, has has, has recipes for uh, for sauerkraut without salt in it. But um, and I think she does use celery juice. So yeah, so you're accumulating uh, microbes from the environment, and then they're fermenting your stuff. So any natural microbes will help you. But really, you know, what the best thing is the best thing is to eat prebiotics. And those prebiotics come from whole plant foods. Uh, and so that's what I would concentrate on. If you want, you could get those whole plant foods from a regenerative organic grower where the, they were produced in a, a regenerative soil, like a beautiful living soil. Because guess what, Chef AJ? If you eat things like carrots or radishes or even lettuces that come from that soil, the, the plants have the good bacteria from the soil. They have completely different bacteria on them than, than produce that comes from conventional pesticide producers. So, and, and those bacteria are good. They, they're the reservoir to help um, restore your microbiome. Um, so I would take prebiotics in the form of whole plant foods. Make sure you're eating a lot of dark leafy greens and beans things that are high, 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 high in fiber and whole grains. I would eat, um, I would eat, go out of your way to eat uh, sorghum and kodo millet because they have highly resistant starches, which, which are not broken down until they reach your colon where your gut, a lot of your gut microbes are, and they'll be, have a party down there. That's what I would do. Wow. Thank you. I'm going to, after I ask you the next question, I will look up those recipes and tell you what the ingredients are. And, yeah, and you know what, by the way, just because mm -hmm. the microbiome is one of my favorite subjects. I believe that, you know, plant-based whole foods people, if you're eating a diverse diet, that's your best, you know, we never like to take antibiotics. Who likes to take an antibiotic? I mean, it is destructive to bacteria. It's estimated that if you take one course, like a week of just even amoxicillin, that it can wipe out between 90 to 95% of all the bacteria in your gut. All of them. That's like leaving 5% less. That's, that's a lot of catastrophe. However, if you have always have, it's the diversity of the whole plant foods and the level of fiber that you're having, if you have that, you will have a very good ecosystem there with representatives of the many key guild members that are responsible for this network of uh, 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 that you, uh, this ecosystem, this microbial e ecosystem you need down there. So that even if you wipe a lot of it out, you'll have representatives that remain that can repopulate when you put down those whole plant fibers. That's the thing I wanted to expound. Nice, thanks. Well, you know, if you're so interested in the microbiome, I think this next question uh, has a little bit to do with it. 
she is, she's named Trisha, and she said, Dr. Weiss, can you treat a sinus infection without antibiotics? I'm pretty sure I have one, but just don't like to take antibiotics since I have Crohn's disease, and my microbiome is very happy right now. I've been pain and medication-free for eight years, eating whole food plant exclusive. Bravo. So I have found that doing exactly what this young lady did is the most effective treatment for Crohn's disease. I've had many ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease patients during my life. Uh, have never, it's rare that I ever see them quiescent uh, on drugs. And even, they may be symptom-free on the drugs, but they still have usually have problems that you can see when you do a colonoscopy. It's not normal down there. And yet, uh, at least with all the Crohn's disease patients, all the ones I've ever seen who's maintained a whole food plant-based diet, they're, 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 in, they're in complete remission. So that's wonderful. Um, yeah, so you definitely do want to be careful, you know. Um, if you were to look, uh, Chef AJ, if you were to go to Google right now and put in a disease, pick any disease you want. It can be any autoimmune disease like Crohn's or it could be lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. Then you can go to all diseases like uh, coronary artery disease or depression or, you know, breast cancer. Uh, we have found out that there are often associated specific deficiencies in the colonic microbiome that are associated with these diseases. So if I had Crohn's disease and I had a already known that my microbiome was compromised, I definitely wouldn't want to challenge it any further with antibiotics. And so, no, you I don't believe you should take the antibiotics. Um, the general, my general approach to treating sinus infections is without antibiotics. And um, I find that as I, I am very successful in treating sinusitis which is probably one of the number one things that doctors see in urgent care visits and upper respiratory infections. You know, I work in urgent care a couple of shifts a week. Wow. Um, how are you diagnosing it then? And it, how do you treat it without antibiotics? Well, um, so I think that's one of the number one diagnoses I see all day long in urgent care. Because what tends to happen is you know, upper respiratory infections, by and large, they are viruses. And the virus will come, you know, the colds, coughs, stuff like that. It'll, the virus will come, the virus causes swelling of your mucous membranes in the nose, the sinus cavities, everywhere up here. And then what happens is, um, you know, you have a microbiome up here too, Chef AJ. It's not only in the gut, it's, it's all over your skin, it's in your airway passages. And so they're bacteria in there. They're good bacteria, supposedly, but when your, your mucous membranes get swollen and, and they shut off the, these bacteria and you start creating mucus because of the inflammation of the virus, then the bacteria have a party. It's warm in there, it's moist, it's dark. They like it and they start to grow and your mucus starts to turn from clear to yellow to green. And that's when you know you have a sinus infection. When you blow out your nose and you see yellow snot or dark green snot, it means that bacteria, your natural bacteria have overrun their boundaries in your cavities. The nose is connected to this. These sinuses, maxillary sinuses, frontal sinuses connected to the ear, ears are connected to the throat, everything's connected. So remember what I said, it, there's really the initial cause is a virus. We don't use antibiotics to viruses. And really the bacteria growing in that colored snot is your own bacteria. Why would you wanna kill off your microbiome? You wouldn't. And, and so we have realized that when people use antibiotics to treat sinusitis or sinus infections over the years, the more they use them, the more likely they will be getting sinus infections because what happens is it's like a catch-22. You'll have the sinus infection, you use antibiotics, but the antibiotics kill 
your own good, healthy competitors in there. And with repeated use, they select for resistant organisms in your sinuses. And those have a difficult time being stamped out. So what I do is uh, I follow the CDC's guidelines. They've taught this in medical school for 30 years that sinusitis should not be treated with antibiotics primarily. You use decongestants and steroids. And that's what I use. I use, and, and, and by the way, uh, if you are, if you're so desperate, you know, you can get these things over the counter. You don't even have to go get a doctor's, go to a doctor. If, if you feel pressure in your sinuses here, when you have an upper respiratory infection and you see green and yellow snot, and if it's so uncomfortable and sometimes it can be horrible, then, um, you know, use Mucinex D maximum strength. It's uh, in my book, the best decongestant that there is. It will help to decongest these passages and, and liquefy the thickness of the snot in your head and have you blow it out. Um, and uh, you can use Flonase, which is over the counter. Two sprays in each nostril once a day, and you use that for a few weeks. You can also use a neti pot uh, that people get relief from, and you should be fine. Yeah, the neti pot, or there's one called Neil MD. Yeah, that, that's really cool. Yeah, it's just saline. Be sure you don't use tap water. Don't use that. It has to be, it has to be that special, you know, sterilized water or else there are rare cases where people have used tap water in a, uh, in a neti pot and they've gotten, they've died from a brain eating amoeba. Oh my God, that's you scary. It's scary. It's very, very rare because you know, you're injecting this stuff into your, deep into your brain cavities. So just use the preparations over the counter. I think you can use tap water if you boil it first. Yes, you'd have to sterilize it. Right. Oh my. Okay. Thank you. Lots of allergy type questions today. This one is from Carol. Can a plant-based diet help with seasonal allergies or other allergies such as mold, dust, pollen, or even food allergies? Uh, yes, it can. Um, it depends how allergic you are. And, uh, you know, it's, um, um, you know, it, on an individual basis, as a general concept and rule, I think that um, going plant-based whole foods is probably the most effective way to com combat seasonal allergies in my experience as a lifestyle medicine doctor. I've noticed that you know, I was an allergy sufferer myself from spring allergies, horrific at times. I've not, in many years, I've not even had so much as a sniffle. I, it doesn't matter how bad the pollen is. And I would say the vast majority, 80 to 90% of my patient with severe spring allergies or fall allergies, they resolve with whole food plant-based. You may have to wait three or six months into doing it, into eating like this. It won't be immediate, but I've noticed that generally speaking after months, mm, so the spring is upon us, Chef AJ. Uh, let's see uh, here. I know, I don't know what your seasons are there in California, but uh, about now allergies will be start picking up here in New Jersey, New York. Uh, going plant-based will not help you for this spring, but definitely for next spring and the fall. As far as food allergies are concerned, uh, you know, that's a bit of a different matter. Um, there is, I did have some patients who had oral allergy syndrome. And that's when patients, the people have difficulty eating the skins of fruits, like plums, peaches, apples, pears, cherries. They're usually either palm fruits with seeds like apples or stone fruits like peaches and plums. And um, uh, I had one patient who, since he was five years old, he was now 50 years old, he was never able to eat a cherry or a plum or a peach because his lips would swell up and get itchy and his tongue every time they would touch his mouth. Two weeks after doing our, what we have this, this 30 day detox here, he was eating all these fruits. 
and it never came back as long as he eat, ate only whole food plant-based. So that's an example of how, you know, eating whole food plant-based modulating this patient's food allergies. Nice. Thank you. I found the salt-free kimchi recipe on my channel. I'll send it to you. It does not have- Wonderful. Oh, please do. And I'm going to look for the sauerkraut one as soon as I ask you the next question from Debbie. I've been donating plasma, but I'm having trouble keeping my protein high enough to donate. I eat mostly plants, mostly soups and salads, lots of veggies and beans and potatoes, also some fruit. Well, um, no other information on this young lady. That's it. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, uh, I'm assuming there's a medical reason as to why she's donating plasma. Plasma is the antibody. It's the immune portion of your blood. And it's used in for patients who have immune deficiencies, who can't make their own antibodies. Um, that's basically, or, or who need antibody transfusions. So there may be a family member that needs this or who knows. Uh, so it, uh, I'm assuming, I'm assuming that it, there may, she may want to continue doing this if she doesn't have to, you know, and if she's just doing it out of altruistic um, reasons, perhaps um, she could just donate whole blood. If, if you want to be a donor, which is a beautiful thing, because we always need blood and blood products for people who are in serious trouble. Um, they may not have that high bar for you. The, the bar for that is just, you know, basically your hemoglobin. They're not looking at your proteins in your blood. The other, the other suggestion I have is that to look again, to make sure you don't have a protein deficiency. Chef AJ, where do you get your protein from? Uh, from people that ask me that question. No, I don't. <laughs> Just kidding. You know, I used to laugh at that question, Chef AJ. And you say, oh, oh, where do, where do giraffes get their protein from? Where do cows get? But you know, it's not so funny anymore. And it's because I find that a lot of people who are eating plants are protein deficient. They're protein deficient. I see it all the time. And the reason why is because they're not eating the right balance of whole plant foods, not eating enough. So that's my suggestion to you. Make sure you're eating at least 60 grams of protein a day. You may not be. Like we mentioned earlier, right? This lady wanted to know about osteoporosis. We have patients here that no matter what they do, they can do loading exercises, they can take vitamin D, they can do whatever they want, yoga, they won't improve their bones unless they're eating at least 60 grams of protein a day. At least that's what I've seen. You may have a similar situation. I've also seen that um, there are other markers in the blood where plant-based whole foods people who are not eating enough protein, and it's easy to do that, Chef AJ. Look, if I ate mostly vegetables and fruits and not so much uh, legumes, you know, some legumes, but not that much, I may get into a protein deficiency program. Maybe maybe not that much high, high um, protein grains. I may have a, a relative protein deficiency. So I would tell this lady to make sure um, she <clears throat> calculates the grams of protein she's eating a day and if, if it's sub 60, get it to between 60 and 80. And then three months later, check your blood to see if you're appropriate to donate plasma. Sounds good. Thank you. Uh, there's so many questions in the chat, but people have to understand we got to follow the protocol. This question's from Melissa, and she wants to know how you test for iodine deficiency and what are the symptoms of being deficient? And is it even important to be tested if you don't have a regular source of iodine in the diet due to not consuming salt? Yeah, those are all excellent questions. Uh, iodine comes from the sea and uh, it can be deposited in the soil and the foods you get that are grown in that soil can be rich in iodine. 
But you know, probably most of the food that we get that you're eating is not grown near the sea. It may be grown in interior lands and soils, which are relatively poor in iodine. So um, that's why uh, the authorities decided to iodize salt, table salt long ago, like Morton salt, it'll say iodized on it because we didn't want, you know, in countries, like in underdeveloped countries uh, where they don't have access to this, you can get a condition in, called goiter of the thyroid, which is a thyroid illness where the thyroid gets ill because it doesn't have access to iodine. Iodine is, is, um, iodine is mandatory for the thyroid to have in order to operate. It is only used by the thyroid. Iodine is not utilized by any other tissue in your body. Isn't that amazing? Only the thyroid. That's the only reason why we use it. But the thyroid's so important, Jeff AJ, because it controls the burning of energy in every single cell of your body. It's your, it controls your metabolism. So we really want to make sure that people don't become iodine deficient. Guess what I discovered when I started checking people's iodine levels, Chef AJ? That they were low. eating plants and not eating salt. Table salt. They, I bet that they were low. I would say about a third of them are non-detectable. We couldn't find any iodine in them. Wow. Now, I must say that the way you test for this is, it's, you know, you can't test for everything in the world because we do have tests, but it doesn't mean just because you can get a laboratory test that it is reflective of real body stores of a certain mineral or vitamin. It may not be. And so is the, the, this case with iodine in the blood. You can't get like an iodine level of the blood and have it be accurate. It's thought that the most accurate test that you can do to assay iodine is a urine test for iodine. And so that's what we get. And so I found out that 20 to 30%, and by the way, a shout out to Nathaniel Smith. If you're out there in the ether listening, he was our wonderful nurse, nurse practitioner uh, who about two years ago, I brought this up and wanted to start doing this, uh, testing people's uh, urine iodine. And that's what we found out, that there were a large, uh, a large minority of people who were deficient. So I tell people, you can either, you need to supplement with iodine because you don't, because iodine is mandatory for the thyroid. You don't want it to be non-existent in you. And most of the people where we find it's non-existent, guess what? The thyroid is operating normally. And that's the genius of our bodies and evolution. We evolved in, in environments of iodine scarcity. And so the, the, cause a lot of us weren't living near the sea. So as humans evolved, uh, we are iodine, our thyroids evolved to snatch up every last single atom of iodine there was. It's hungry for iodine. So if you have no iodine in your urine, it may be, maybe because the, the thyroid is still snatching up every single last available atom of iodine, but you don't want to stress it out so much. Take iodine. You can do that either by eating seaweed. We tell our patients to eat a teaspoon of arame, or a teaspoon of dulce flakes every day, or you could eat two sheets of nori. The seaweed comes from the sea and has iodine, or you could just take an iodine supplement. 150 micrograms every day is what the federal government recommends. And I've noticed that as long as you're consistent with one of those options, you'll do great. Great. Chef AJ, I'm looking at the time. It's three Yeah, yep, you gotta go. We, we, we were you know what I wanted to propose to you? What? I, I, I hate to be a boring doctor. You're not boring. And, and um, I just, I want to always remain fresh and vital and, and, uh, and, and say exciting things to your audience. So I was wondering if you could poll your audience to see what they prefer. Do they prefer a format like this where I just come on and we chat about questions? Would you like certain topics? Like, would you, would they like a show? And I can recommend some topics. Like, for example, um, we can, um, one of the things I was thinking about was 
bringing on our lifestyle director and and taking specific questions as to how we solve um, healthcare issues with mindfulness. Like that's a big tool that we use in our program, uh, in our practice here, or you know how we solve lifestyle medical problems with mindfulness-based stress reduction, um, or maybe diet prep questions, but. Um, I was thinking maybe that if people are interested in the mindfulness aspect and how how you can in a practical way apply it to your everyday practices at home to make yourself like a ninja. Uh, if you want to hear about that, that's the suggestion. If not, uh, I'll just keep doing these questions. You let me know. So, you know, we're getting a mixed bag. People love the open format. They're saying you're absolutely the best. Some people do prefer topics. Colleen says, I I like anything from him. I learn no matter what he talks about. Stephanie, I could listen to Dr. Weiss every day. Love the format. So, you know, I think, you know, when we, the more people we ask, the more opinions we're going to get. So I think, <laughs> we're in trouble. I think you should do what, what makes you feel the best, what you enjoy, or maybe just mix it up a little bit. I mean, okay. we, listen, we got questions going all the way back several months. It's going to be up to you. Good. Okay. To be continued. To be. Well, thank you, Dr. Weiss. It's always fun learning from you. Thank you, Chef AJ. It's Take great care. Thank you. And Bye. thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back in two hours when Kathy Hester is once and for all going to settle what is the best ice cream machine to make vegan ice cream. Take care, everyone.